podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome. I'm Les Bubka and this is Accidental Podcast or something like that. My today guests are Michelle van der Linden Enfield and Paul Enfield, the Goju couple are teaching Goju Ryu over the world, um, having a dojo in Karlsbad, if I pronounce that properly. Um, and I'm super happy to have them. I met them a couple of times on the seminars. Uh, if you haven't been on the seminar, uh, I recommend you to go. It, it's great. Um, hello and welcome. How are you guys? Good, thanks. Yeah, thank thanks you. for thanks, having us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. Great to see you again. It's always a pleasure to see you guys, and uh, I follow you online, and um, all the stuff you're doing is always very, very interesting. Um, could you tell us um, more about you? I know that, Michelle, you are a super important person working for a great cause of um, working with the United Nations, if I'm correct, uh, about the equality of women. Could you tell us more about your karate background and and that UN job? And then we're going to ask Paul about his background because that's very interesting for all the martial artists as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I do some philanthropic work. I'm an advocate against sexual assault and domestic violence for the state of California and also a, a member of a Seroptimist organization, which is um, educating women and girls to achieve their dreams. So through that, I had the wonderful opportunity to attend um, the uh, CSW 63 and 64 as a delegate to the United Nations. As far as my martial arts background, I began in Krav Maga and uh, did Krav Maga for a bit. And my kids actually joined, uh, my three daughters joined a, a more local dojo because I had to travel quite a bit for the Krav Maga. And I started watching Goju and I, I really liked the philosophy. It intersected more along the lines uh, with my spirituality and my uh, principles and uh, values. So I started Goju Karate, I think in 2000 or 2001, uh, later in life after, you know, after I think I was 35 or so. And I just went full steam ahead. <clears throat> trained every single class I could, got up early at the in the morning. You know how it is. You have kids too. Got up <laughs> early in the morning. I had to train before anyone woke up to practice my kata and do my basics. And um, eventually, uh, my goal in karate was to overcome fear, one of my goals. Uh, and to that end, I ended up doing tournaments because when when Sensei Paul first told me that they had a tournament team, I was like, oh, heck no, I'm not, no way am I doing that. And then I realized that's your fear talking again. Your job, your mission is to kick fear's butt. So um, guess who's doing a tournament? So I just, I just kept pushing myself and pushing myself. And um, fortunately I had, uh, you know, Sensei Paul said great leadership and support and was able to stay uh, for all these years. I had previously owned a preschool, so before I was even a yellow belt, <clears throat> I was teaching. I was invited to teach and go through instructor training, and um, then that's, you know, then I was there even more. So that's pretty much it for me. But uh, 
I love that approach, that, that head-on collision. I feel something, I will do it. I, I do the same, because with my own anxiety, that's the only way to do it. Hence the podcast. Paul, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you, you spend a lot of time in Japan, if, I, if I'm uh, correct, uh, training under uh, Igaona-sensei and other great masters. Could you go um, get insight to your side of the story? Okay, well, uh, yeah, I grew up in the UK. Uh, um, and uh, I started uh, training when I was about 17, 16 or 17. And I already ha always had a uh, great interest in, in martial arts, mostly because of the, the actually the Kung Fu cra craze at that time, Bruce Lee, the TV show Kung Fu and all these sort of uh, Saturday night Chinese Kung Fu movies and all that type of thing. So I had a, I, I, even before when I was younger, I, I was interested in martial arts and I was attracted by the you know, smashing of bricks and punching of boards and the <clears throat> apparent sort of superhuman abilities of martial artists. So I think that caught my interest as a youngster. Um, but I didn't actually find a dojo or a school to train in uh, until I was about 17, 16 or 17. And I saw a... Uh, a little ad in a newspaper, a local newspaper for uh, Kung Fu classes. I thought, great, this is what David Carradine does. You know, he does, mm -hmm. we're going to go to the Shaolin Temple and meditate and stuff. And, um, and so I, uh, the class was about 10 miles from where I live. And as you know, in, in England, everyone cycles everywhere. So I just got on my bike and I rode to the class. And, uh, and it was uh, Lao Ga Kung Fu, which is still around, I believe. So that was my first experience in martial arts, and I really liked it. Um, uh, train, I, I would cycle. Uh, I think it was twice a week they were doing the class in a church hall. I would cycle ten miles, do the class, cycle ten miles back, uh, twice a week, and then a, f a few months later, I um, ran into a sort of friend of a friend who trained in karate, and uh, and he invited me to come along to that dojo, and it was a lot closer to my house. Um, but it, it was on the same days as the Kung Fu classes. Uh, however, it was uh, later. The Kung Fu class was something like, I can't remember exactly, it was 5.30 to 6.30 or something, or 5 to 6. And the uh, karate was uh, 7 to 9. And so on, after finishing one of my Kung Fu classes, I went to that karate dojo. I didn't know anything about it. My friend wasn't there. I got there a little bit early. Um, and uh, I got, got invited to do some light sparring by one of the brown belts. He proceeded to beat the crap out of me for 10 minutes before class. Uh, which now as, a, in, as an owner of a, a sort of commercial dojo, that, you know, imagine if one of your students, you had a new student come in and one of your seniors just started beating them up. I mean, that's not a great way to uh, collect students. But anyway, it, it didn't put me off. Uh, it was just the way it was. And that ended up being uh, Paul Coleman Sensei's dojo in Oxford, who's, and he's still there teaching. Uh, and so uh, I started doing both of the, the Kung Fu and Karate simultaneously. I'd cycle to the Kung Fu, cycle back, do the karate mm -hmm. class, go home. Um, and uh, I did that for a few months. And uh, I liked doing both, but little by little, I. Uh, started to see that the way Gorju was presented, the way Paul Sensei presented the class, it, it had a lot more 
relevance to me. It seemed to me that the way that the, uh, we were learning the kata and the basics and then actually using, you know, using them in, in the two-person drills, whereas the Kung Fu was we did all the really fancy forms and everything, but it was just, but the only sparring we did was like tournament style sparring. So uh, um, I, I had an incident when I was about 19 or so, I got knifed. I, got, I was walking in London, I got knifed and I ended up in uh, intensive care and I was, in, I was hospitalized for uh, a week or 10 days and I, I was recovering for about six or eight weeks. So, but after that, I decided to just concentrate on the karate. That kind of made me concentrate on the karate. So I trained with Paul Coleman Sensei, who's a fantastic inspirational teacher, trains really hard. And uh, I first met Higuana Sensei in 1984, a training gashku in uh, Scotland. And, uh, and I also took my shodan there. And so, uh, I decided that I, I really wanted to find out more about this, not just karate and the training, but where it came from, the culture. So I, I ended up going to Okinawa to train with him. And that was a very, that was like the January 1st, 1985 or something. I went out there, flew out there and I uh, just, my plan was to stay for three months in Japan. Uh, I ended up, Staying three years, and uh, really the only reason I left Japan was because he wanted to move here to the United States, and so uh, I followed him, and that's how that's how I ended up here. Um, but yeah, so I trained with him uh, full time, I suppose, for about six or seven years, and then uh, I uh, left left that group around about. Must have been 1991. I was trained, uh, just focused on our own dojo till 1997. 1997, I decided I want to go back to Okinawa. And so I went to the Jundokan dojo of Miyazato H. Sensei. And uh, um, I stayed in Okinawa for three weeks that time. And I was just training like, all day, every day at the Jundokan dojo. And Miyazato Sensei was tremendously kind and inspirational. And I ended up affiliating with Jindokan for the next uh, a lot of years, I don't know, 13, 14 years uh, before things turned upside down there and and there was all kinds of splits. Uh, and then we ended up affiliating, actually not affiliating, we ended up following uh, Kaida Sensei who had become our main teacher at that time, our main teacher. Um, and when he left for Jindokan, we followed him. And then uh, when he set up an organization, we joined that. And that lasted for a couple of years. And now we're on, we're on our own again. But yeah, it's, it's been fantastic. I mean, I, I, I feel very fortunate to have spent a lot of time training with uh, 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 Coleman Sensei and then um, Higgle Sensei. Uh, and, and I wouldn't say I trained a lot with Miyazato Sensei, but the time I did spend with him, was very inspirational, and then uh, training a lot with the Kaido Masagi Sensei. It's been a fantastic experience. So yeah, I, when I um, was used to live in Poland, I used to have all the karate DVDs and uh, VHS at the time, 
uh, and I um, when they start noticing your your um, post on Facebook, I said I know that guy from somewhere, but I couldn't put it where. But then you start posting your um, kicking techniques with uh, Higaonas and says, yeah, I know him, I know that guy. I've been watching him when I was little. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was the Panther video. So that that was uh, shortly after Higaonas and said come to the states, and the Panther video was the biggest, you know, martial arts video. Mm. Uh, company at that time and they had this huge great it was like a Hollywood production studio not far from here actually and where Higona Sensei was um, and so Joe Jennings the owner would come drive down in this Ferrari um, to the dojo in San Marcos and it was all set up with blue paper around it he put up his director's chair it was really Hollywood and that went on that filming for that series went on for about two weeks solid and uh, and the amazing thing was about it was that uh, Joe Jennings had filmed everyone, like everyone who's anyone he had filmed. And he, and we're about half, well, we're almost done with the filming, which lasted about a fortnight. And he said, he said, this is amazing because I've never had uh, a production where I don't need to do second takes. He said, oh, everything, wow. everything he wanted to say does, I don't need to do a second take. It's just, that's what he does. And the reason was, I figure, and you know, he, part of that he trains, you know, he's super, he trains like an absolute, like he's possessed almost. He has amazing ability. Uh, he he wasn't trying to show off, you know, he was just doing what he always does. Mm. He was just doing what he does. And that's why I think, uh, I think people like Joe Jennings haven't seen that before. Because a lot of people were just trying to impress him or whatever. Anyway, it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience, the whole thing. And, and now a few years later, we all using the mobile phones to record all our our stuff I think it might it might be of interest also uh, that you have a special uh, first time experience of going to China um, that do you feel like that enriched your experience in your yeah, well yeah I mean uh, yeah so so I was in uh, let's see Japan I was in there for, I was there from 1985 to 88 about three years and um, in uh, 19, I think it was 87. But he honestly had this dream to uh, travel to China and find the roots of Goju or at least research it. And he was, uh, I don't know if people know, he's, he's not only an avid practitioner physically, I mean, he just trains, uh, like I say, just like he's possessed so many hours. I mean, just train hours and hours and hours every day. Uh, but also he was, uh, he, he was he was like that. He was single-minded about everything he did. And so one of the things was in his research. He was always writing, and he has copious notes, just notes and notes and notes, and always writing, interviewing people, recording it, writing it down. Uh, lots of tape tape recordings, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but one of his dreams was to go to China uh, and sort of follow in the footsteps of uh, uh, Miyagi Cho, well Higona Kanyo, and Miyagi Cho, and other teachers who have been to China. And so uh, through, uh, I suppose it, this was facilitated by his Hong Kong group, IGKF Hong Kong group. And anyway, they, they, they created a connection with uh, the Fuchao Wushu Association, which was a government association at that time, because it was still, this was before China opened up. And uh, he, he told me, he said, I'm going to China, you know, and to uh, continue my research. And I said, oh, Sensei, can I go with you? He said, yeah, of course you can. And so uh, uh, that was 
it was amazing because he was so excited to go. And so, he, so I went, uh, Kato Tomoyuki, who was a senior student at that time. Um, and then uh, uh, Sugawara-san, who's, who was a, his, one of his book publishers, and also a, uh, a, a teacher of Aikido, but, but he was training under Kato-sensei in Gojuju. So he came, and then uh, the, uh, um, the guy from, I can't, sorry, I can't remember his name, from Hong Kong came. So it was about four of us went. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing to see. Uh, this was before people were going over there on a regular basis. Like now, everyone's going over there, right? Now there's all kinds of programs you can stay there. But then it was, uh, everything was sort of closed and it was only because of this relationship with the government we could go. It was, it was fascinating. And, and one of my brightest memories is just watching how enthused Higona Sensei was. He was like a, a kid in a candy store, as they say. <laughs> just, he was so excited to uh, see, to share. It was, it was a really good experience, yeah. Um, as you probably know, or maybe not know, um, I'm kind of highly involved with um, working with um, charities for mental health. So we're using karate as a, a support of their therapy. Uh, so I ask this question to everybody. Um, what impact had or has karate on your mental health? You can fight who's gonna say first. <laughs> um, well, well, I think for me, you know, one of my reasons for joining karate, right? Um, I'm a survivor of child abuse and also sexual assault. So I had real trust issues uh, raising my three girls. And uh, I was a single mom for a time. So for me, I wanted to stop feeling fearful walking around in the world and having anxiety that my child's going to be snatched from me and there's nothing I can do about it. So uh, in that regard, it was really empowering. And um, uh, if I'm completely honest, Overcoming fear is not easy. It's it's very very difficult as 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 you know, and uh, but I was just so done being afraid. I, I just could not. It was a worse option for me to live with all that fear and anxiety than the fear of going to the dojo every night. And I was terrified. I I, I for probably th three easy the first two years, possibly even the third year. I would have so much anxiety going in there um, that I would literally be shaking on the way to the dojo and I forced myself to go. And, um, you know, because I had been through so much physical child abuse, um, the more I did karate, I was like, oh, okay, gosh, I've been hit a lot harder. You know, I mean, when, when you're a child and you're being hurt and harmed with malicious intent, uh, I was able, for me, I was able to finally parse out the trauma from the practice, right? Which was really, really important. And then later I was fortunate enough to have the resources to get uh, EMDR training, which get, gets rid of the physical PTSD in the body. Um, I don't know if you're, uh, you're familiar with EMDR, but um, so in a combination uh, of going and I found the right place for me, right? Like I felt I had agency and it was okay to say, this is too much for me. Of course, I always pushed through, um, which sometimes ended up, um, particularly the choking, because I was choked a lot So when, as a child. So when we practiced the choking, of course, that would bring it right back, right? 
And I wouldn't understand why at the time I, I didn't understand why. And I would just, I would go into what we call in the business tonic immobility, which is fear response. So the body just shuts down and you, and you can't move. And um, so this happened to me a few different times in karate. And, uh, you know, because I had supportive folk around me and uh, I was in sort of a nurturing community, not a bullying community, not an ego community where it's like, uh, um, you know, I was shamed for feeling a certain way or um, shamed for showing up with, you know, whatever anxiety I had. Uh, it, it wasn't that way at all. It was a community that engendered, engendered uh, compassion and empathy. And uh, therefore I was able to thrive. And so, uh, and, and stay, stay with it, right? And for me, connecting, you know, and then in turn now being a teacher, being able to give that back, especially to the students who were of the age uh, that I was when I was first abused, which was quite young, four, four and five, at three, four, and five is when the abuse started. So I can really connect with those kids and, I, and we give them the skills to set verbal boundaries, even with family, right? And as we know, a lot of the abuse takes place when it's one-on-one -on -one with a trusted either family member or friend. And so we actually role play like, no thanks, not today. Um, we do these things with the parents watching so that they understand uh, tacitly what it, what consent looks like and what a verbal boundary looks like and um in the you know in the in the bigger scope of the whole dojo we we role model consent with each other so we'll say um sensei paul is it okay if i touch you or he'll say is it okay if i touch you for this next exercise or is it okay if i do a takedown obviously there is implied consent with us but the important the more important thing is this is how we ask for consent we're tacitly showing our students we're engaging in the performance of getting consent and passing that on to our students so that it's no more it's not awkward right we don't have classes where we're teaching our boys like this is how we ask for consent it's just all awkward right but when you start normalizing it and and they see us doing that with one another it's like oh the, oh okay that's the thing we do yeah that's the thing we do and look how easy it is and and um just it's a big deal, but you don't want to make it a big deal, right? So, um, so that's kind of, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, by extension, when you join a dojo, it's the community that keeps you there, right? Like you, yeah. you're going to lose folk who, who do not have the same principles and values. They're always going to fall away. And so, one of the things I think we, we talked about this a bit this morning in, in preparing to speak with you is that when, when folks uh, are going through tough times and they're community members, they have the community, they have the, the GKC community to rely on and be there for them and really show up for them in many, many ways. We're always at the, you know, we're always teaching our classes. Even now we're on Zoom. Um, if something happens to one of our community members, you know, we, we gather around, what do you need? Okay, if it's meals, um, we, let's, let's put up a meal train or, or whatever it is, or just, just being there and listening to what's going on for, for our students. So I think that aspect uh, is what we have heard from our community that is powerful in regards to mental health. Yeah, I, I, I find that, uh, that the key, key thing is that uh, non-judgmental community who supports 
uh, within the group. It doesn't matter if it's karate or whatever else, but that, that works the best when you can go. And, and actually, I was talking yesterday with my friend, um, Aikido guy, and he said that all brings to safety. If people feel safe and comfortable, then all, all going to be fine. Paul, how about you? Yeah, well, okay, it's, it's a bit of a difficult question, isn't it? I, I think um, one is that for me, um, I think I was attracted to martial arts because, uh, like I said before, uh, because it, people who do it seem powerful. And I think mm -hmm. uh, one of the things um, as a kid, for whatever reason, I, I was uh, uh, very shy as a kid. I mean, I still am shy, basically, shy person. I was very shy as a kid. To the point where, when I was in a in like nursery school, the my parents told me, or my mum told me, was that um, the one of the teachers asked her if I can actually speak because I never did, um, and uh, and so well, yeah, as, as uh, I think the constant of martial arts and being able to focus on something and making small small sets of improvement and getting a uh, positive feedback from uh, uh, generous, your, your peers and your teachers. I think that's very, that's been very important to me. And not all dojos are like that. So you, you can, you can get in a situation where rather than being built up, you can be put down. So I think- Shame and humiliation. Yeah, so I think I've been very lucky. In fact, I was just talking to Paul Coleman sensei today and, and telling one of the thing, telling him one of the things that I really appreciate about him was that he always encouraged me. He even encouraged me when I wanted to to leave the dojo and pursue uh, uh, training in Japan and stuff. Off you know. But yeah, I think uh, I think it's always been a constant there. So when things are going well in your in, in our lives, the karate is a constant. The training, the community, um, and now, I mean. We have a we have an international community also, but especially now in the COVID sort of era, that's even more important. And we're we're we have we've extended the dojo community all around the world now with our different members or even people who aren't members, just people who we can talk to and support, and they can support us. And so that's you know that's I think that's been the key thing for me is that um, that constant. It's always there, and. Uh, as a as a kid and a teenager, I can um, even as an adult, I'm a very shy person, and I I would never have guessed that I would be in a position uh, standing in front of a group of people and teaching them something, or people coming to me because uh, uh, they they want to learn something or they have a question or even uh, I'll caution about this, but this is this is what happens as you as an instructor, even adults come to you with their psychological problems, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I would have never guessed that. And and by the way, if they do, unless you're a professional, refer them somewhere else. Support them, don't judge them, but refer them somewhere else. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I think without without martial arts, you know, I don't I don't really know. I, I don't know where I would be kind of thing. Um, I, I feel I, I definitely was very, definitely not confident as a child, a teenager, even a young, young adult. And I, I've, I, I, I have a confidence now about, at least in my profession, things I do. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's been, uh, yeah, it's very important. Like I said, I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for martial arts, really. Mm. Uh, you said about your international community and uh, 
support. Uh, is the British sense of humor part of it? Because I I really really enjoy your uh, comments <laughs> on all the all the all the groups. And uh, as I'm living in UK and kind of uh, one thing which my dad I'm grateful for well, one of few things I'm grateful was introduction of me as a little boy watching Monty Python's. Uh, that was my first day night where I could watch Monty Python stay up eight nine o'clock in the evening. So I kind of get the uh, the English humor, but um, your posts mm -hmm. always make me smile. <laughs> I know that a lot yeah. of people not get in it, and you get a bit of a backlash, and, and you have to do explaining sometimes. But um... well, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, social media is a funny thing, isn't it? Because you can't, you're not face to face. So, and I, I, I haven't mastered emojis, and if I, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what they all mean. There's like 50, there's 50 emojis which are smiling, but they're slightly different. I have no idea which one means what. But yeah, I think uh, I think look, we're a community and we do a serious thing, but we don't have to be serious all the time. We should be able to make fun of ourselves um, and uh, make fun of the sort of seriousness of the art we practice sometimes, and people get sort of carried away sometimes. You know, there has to be a balance. It doesn't mean what you do isn't serious, and it, it doesn't mean um, uh, obviously that you, you you take it seriously. But you should have fun too, I think. And I think uh, this is a great segue into the question you asked. Uh, one of the questions on your list was, "How do we get on as a martial arts couple?" Mm -hmm. And that was actually uh, from my wife. <laughs> so, uh, is your is your wife also a martial artist? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. So one of the one of the useful tools I think is when when we're getting a little too serious is is using humor. We have to use humor when we see, you know, okay, this is kind of getting, <laughs> it's getting a little heated. So I think the ability to laugh at oneself or to point out the, uh, well, just what you were saying, like I'm the sensei and I say it's this way, so it's, you know, you know just the silliness of, of, of that. And, and that's a, a really useful tool as a, a couple, um, obviously, um, there's there's times when you're when you're working through things and uh, you know our personalities are different, which um, which is fantastic because it we both bring different things to the table. So learning and understanding about each other in a deeper level and being able to exploit our strengths in a way that benefits the community, our relationship uh, is ideal. I mean, obviously we're we're human. And uh, you know we have problems, probably like everybody else. But um, yeah, I think humor is important. And and he's hilarious. Tell him one of your good jokes, babe. Uh, <laughs> I have to look up on the internet. He sits on the phone. He sits on the phone in the kids' classes and looks up these kid jokes. And we'll talk. They'll sit on the. They'll sit on the on Zoom after class or before class for hours with trying to guess the answer to the joke. Funny. My, my son, my son is now uh, entered to the um, realms of jokes, and he's tried to create his own. He's three and a half, okay. and it just he comes up with such a stuff that uh, just cracks me up. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think, I think also what happens in, in martial arts is there's a, there's this hierarchy which you have to be very careful of because the hierarchy in anything, but we're talking about martial arts now. Can can lead to uh, a culture of abuse, and I think uh, <clears throat> I think one of the things 
one of the things about being humorous about you know high ranks and this type of thing and titles is to sort of diffuse that a little bit because be, being a uh, a high rank in karate or a, a well-respected teacher or a teacher of teachers or whatever should never trump being a decent human being and that's that's mm. that's the thing and that's i think bringing humor to uh, should be part of that and if someone and if someone can't take a joke about their title or position well maybe they're taking it a little bit too seriously you know? um i've got a friend or my good friend he's a ninth dan uh, in traditional karate, modern traditional karate, they call it, I think. Um, <laughs> but he, but he got the, uh, he, he brought brought me into meditation in in karate, so I'm very grateful for him. But he always tells me this: it doesn't matter which dan you are, but you step home and you can put your belt in the pocket and just say yes, love, I do it. <laughs> so the wife is always right. Correct. The what is always right? Wife. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Ah, that, well, that, uh, that, that kind of humor to me is, um, is playing on misogynist ideals, right? Like, let's all pretend the wife has power. Let's, you know, the wife is always right. So I, well, I think it's, a, it's interesting to point out that, you know, you might be saying it in jest, but, um, but what, what's the root of that, right? Like, oh, we just... The, the root to me, and I'm telling you this as a woman, yeah, yeah. so I speak with authority, speak with a lot of weight here as a woman, <laughs> that saying that is is kind of saying like, let's just play along and pretend she has the power when we all know us white men hold all the power. So I, I just personally feel like, you know, those kind of uh, jokes, gender jokes can be a slippery slope and they, yeah, they quite yeah. honestly make me uncomfortable. The wife is always right. Well, no one's always right. If it's an equal relationship, if it's based on parity and equity, then we're gonna be wrong. I'm gonna be wrong a lot. You're gonna be wrong a lot. And we meet somewhere in the middle, right? Um, I, think, I think one of the hardest things about being a woman in the martial arts is, um, and, and, and is just being able to say, that makes me feel uncomfortable, right? Like I just said. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm mostly around a lot of times all men. And, and, and sometimes I've had to sit through, you know, them talking about experiences of, oh, did you see such and such, you know, kind of objectifying women. Mm. It is so incredibly uncomfortable uh, that you just want to get up and leave. And um, luckily, Paul and I have uh, the relationship where, uh, you know, because in that arena, he's a higher rank, he's a white male, we live in a patriarchal culture, he has the power. So it, it can be important for him to say, hey guys, this is awkward. Or sometimes, you know, for me to say, especially if you know them, right? If I don't know the people, it's, it's a lot different. But I think coming to that balance where, where we are actually looking at each other in an equal way, right? Like women aren't just here to look pretty. Like I've had people say, oh, your hair looks great. Like after teaching, uh, do you have any questions? Oh, questions or comments? Oh yeah, your hair looks great, really. <laughs> you see? So, so, so it, I think uh, because one of your other questions was um, what can we do more of? And I think more sensitivity, more, you know, really looking at the things we're saying and how they affect people. I mean, if I sat here and say, said, uh, you know, hey, hey, Les, did you see the biceps on uh, Steve over there the other day? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, how awkward is that going to, I mean, it, it just seems ridiculous, right? Yeah. But it's an experience that 
us women martial artists deal with often and frequently. And I think just an awareness to that and and for guys to be pointing that out like, ooh, maybe not the maybe not the place to have this conversation. It's it's uncomfortable for me um, as a man, and I can only imagine for women or whatever. Mm. But I think um, I think those little things, and I know they are not they are not brought to the conversation to be demeaning. It's it's kind of like a, a, a the old boys club, right? Or or just a way of communicating that. Um, that maybe is could be more thoughtful. As I tell you so, something else about the same expression. So um, I'm going with my wife to get married in the registry office here, and the registrar, which is a woman, tells me this: um, "You want to have a happy marriage? Just do what she tells you. The wife is always right." So I think there is a balance of people um, on a, a male side and a female side playing there. Um, maybe just got used to it, to expressions, and it's kind of, uh, kind of in a humoristic yeah, I, way. I think definitely, I think we get, I mean, I, 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 I if I don't catch myself, then uh, Michelle will catch me out um, saying something which is an expression I've used for a long time. And when, when she says, oh, I said, oh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. And it does, and it can, it can be sexist without realizing it or, um, uh, insulting to some uh, group of people in, in some way because you don't think about it but I think it, I think it is our responsibility especially as teachers to think more and more about uh, the way we speak the way we interact um, I mean this, this isn't quite the same thing but this happens a lot with kids who come into our class uh, especially with the young kids the parent will bring a new kid in and they'll so the kid is coming in to do a new activity. They've never met anyone before. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're acting like they're a little bit apprehensive or shy. And the parent says, oh, um, uh, little Johnny is shy. And, it's, and whenever someone says that, we go, it's like that. We're like. And then don't be shy. Oh. Don't yeah. be shy, you know. So it's like, I don't want any attention on myself. And now I'm getting all the attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so now they identify as being shy. So now you have one more thing to overcome. And as someone who was shy as a kid, particularly, and people say that all the time, it, it, it doesn't help the situation. It doesn't. And I've learned this from Paul, right? Yeah. Like, I, I've, I've said some things that, you know, like, uh, maybe something along the lines of uh, guys aren't supposed to cry or have hurt feelings. And I'll say something making light of that. And he's, he's like, look, that, that's why guys don't share their feelings because of that, because of that joke you just tried to make. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was really powerful. So we all contribute to the patriarchy. And like the woman that you said at the courthouse, she's the one that said that. That's internalized, right? Internalized patriarchy or misogyny. It's the water we swim in. All we can ever do is just do the best we can in this moment and be open to other ways of moving through the world, right? That, that are um, inclusive. And I love the model of inclusivity and even the fact that you're bringing up inclusivity uh, in this podcast and, and to the broader population. It's so, so important. And it's a huge part of our mental health. I mean, we know with the LGBTQ community, um, not having a community, not having a safe space um, it has led to, to heightened rates in suicide and, and self-harming and, and other things. So uh, 
I really think the work you're doing is important and profound to do with mental health and inclusivity. And I think the martial arts is a wonderful platform to uh, propagate that as long as, you know, we're always keeping, we're kind of keeping that power check and, and being safe. And, and so I just want to take a minute and I think we do applaud you for, for putting yourself out there because it's not easy to have these conversations. And um, it's definitely not easy to introduce, although it is becoming more uh, um, acceptable in common society, things like seeing a therapist, mental health, no one wants to talk about it, you know, and, and men going to therapy, right? Women are far more likely to go into therapy and talk about their issues uh, with depression, particularly uh, than men. And that, that needs to stop. And, and so me making a joke about, you know, oh, well, you're crying and you're sad. That's not helping, right? So I think there's a call-out culture. I'm sure you've heard that term, call-out culture, right? Uh -huh. And call-out culture can work with like your really tight-knit people, but we need to be really careful and um, compassionate about the way that we talk about these things and the way that uh, if we choose to call it out or just question it. And um, I, I really like and support the work that you do. Thank you. Um, so the reason why I started doing that because um, I kind of be I kind of can empathize with uh, women being kind of excluded from things because what, what happened with our family? Um, I decided to uh, quit my job uh, so my wife can pursue her um, how we call it um, her work. So she's she's going for a, for a ho hoops and hops in her company, and I'm taking care of children. And what I uh, found out is that when I took my son, who was about six, seven months old, um, I've been told I cannot access the classes for children because it's for just women only. Really? Uh, yeah, really? because they're going to talk about birth, breast, and stuff like that. Uh, uh, my thought was, well, you see that child, I think I've seen a few things in life. I know how women look like. I'm a paramedic, used to be paramedic, so I know how body works. Uh, I think that should be full inclusion. And as well, um, being the still one of the few men on the playgrounds or groups, um, I've got the comments from women that, you know, well, you should be making money for your family. You should be supporting family. You're not working. You're a lazy bum taking care of children. And anybody who knows got children knows how difficult to work with children is. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I'm not sitting at home and drinking coffee all the time. I'm running. I'm running a lot. Um, so I decided that, you know, uh, I can kind of put the perspective on how women are treated in the workplace and stuff like that. And, and, and it would be nice to have a group of people or organizations that bring everybody equally uh, to the table and we can go wherever we want to. And, and, and just what you said, um, it should be all equal. So and now I lost in my questions because we mixed everything. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I'm really interested in the methodology of training and uh, I promote inclusion, as you know. So I've got all the different disabilities coming into my class and I try to put everything, everybody together. What are your methods and changes and adaptation to um, work with uh, children, adults? I don't teach children, but you do, you, you do a great job with children. What are the adaptations of um, working with people with different abilities? Oh, I'd be really interested in to hear how you adapt as well. Um, do, do you want to talk or? Uh, well, I mean, if 
I could give you sort of a case study. I mean, as you know, one of, one of the exciting things about teaching, and we've talked about this before, is kind of unlocking what is it that this person, what is it that's going to be the biggest benefit to this person, whether it's a four-year-old or a, a 64-year-old, right? Because we're all there for a reason. Um, whether you're on the spectrum or not, or you have a physical limitation, uh, we can always work around them. But it's figuring out, part of the fun is figuring out like, okay, boom, they don't know how much they're going to get out of this. This is so exciting. And I know how to insert the key and turn that motor on and get it going. Um, I will, I'll, I'll cite um, a couple instances. We've had folks on the spectrum who were not in a place where they could join a group class. Uh -huh. Just way too, way too anxiety provoking and triggering, um, particularly uh, folks that have auditory sensitivities, right? And, and that doesn't even have to be a spectral, it's not even a spectral disorder. I have auditory sensitivities. So, you know, we have kind of a smallish dojo. So when there's a loud noise, it just really amplifies and echoes in there. So what we, what we did with uh, these two particular cases I'm thinking about is we did a private lesson. And, uh, and it was short enough to where they didn't feel emotionally exhausted and we kept it uh, very repetitive. So they knew exactly what they was expected of them from the second they showed up to outside the dojo. They put their shoes on the rack side by side. They stand at the door, they bow, they say, onegaishimasu. They come in, you know, they knew exactly what was expected of them, which uh, invokes a feeling of safety, right? And um, they were never harmed emotionally or physically by us. The words we used were, were gentle. And when you get to know someone at that level, um, you can start seeing when they're when they're getting when they're escalating, right? Mm -hmm. It's I'm, I'm sure you've seen it if if you've worked with folks. And so we just did that for a, a fair amount of time. And then I had two special needs folk kids in the class. I just did like a, a little class with them together instead of separate, and then just slowly integrated them into the class. And when I integrated them, when we integrated them into the group class, I went back to the exact same warm up that we did, which is we do a Jumbi, you know, that's, that's standardized, standardized. So, um, so that part was easy because we already have that sort of uh, foundation in place. And, and just by knowing the student, it's like, okay, it's, you're done today. You know, that's enough. I can see it's just not going to work because they just, it's so emotionally overwhelming, especially these kids that are in a big school or they've already done other activities that day. And, and also even, even with the parents, I don't know if you, you've noticed, but sometimes it can be, um, they get very, very protective. Oh, here. And, you know, at one point this, our student was a 12 year old and the mom's tying his shoes. And I'm like, you know, that's a life skill and putting his shoes on is something he's capable of doing. And yeah, I, like, not, oh! <laughs> yeah, I had that with, we had a program with the council here, Guildford Council, um, teaching uh, uh, 12 to 16 year old with autism. And I found that the parents putting more barriers to those children than, than there's needed, or you won't be able to do that, or he's not gonna be able to do that. Limiting, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's not going to be, he's too, too afraid. No, no. And the, luckily we had a um, supervisor there. So the parents was asked to leave. 
And the children was fine. They've been doing everything what I said, what, what we've done, having fun, no problems. But since parents comes in, like paralyzed, you know, no, I can't do it. No, you, you won't be able to do it. You won't do it. Um, and yeah, I agree with you that uh, totally the, the communication with the student is the key to success. You, you need to be able to communicate uh, and understand each other. And I wonder, I don't know about, I don't know about the system there, but here, you know, it, uh, it's, it's not necessarily inclusive. Anything, any, any service that you get here, you have to fight tooth and nail for. You have to make a case so you get services for your child. And because of that, that's very exclusive, right? It's like, oh no, your child, your child is too high functioning. Your child is too low functioning. Like you're constantly trying to get these services. And so it does create an us or them, and you feel a need to protect your child. So I, I do think that the way, at least the system here is in the U.S., that the parents have to advocate so hard uh, to get their children's services and to keep them safe and protected that, that they need, you know, it's a learning process for them as well. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know my child could do that. Wow, that, this is great, you know, and okay, these, these, I can trust these folks with my, with my child. It's a safe place. And just proving that again and again through time. This is the way we do it. If you have a question about what we did, here's why we did it. Um, okay, that happened. Oh, maybe that was a mistake. Let's talk to our staff. Let's fix that problem. I'm not saying we're perfect. You know, we're just like everybody else. We, we figure out better ways forward through the great things and also through the mistakes. Yeah, especially that you, you cannot um, have one process for everybody. Everybody's different and, and, the, and the guys, I don't teach children, but the guys, uh, guys responding completely different to the different stimuli and uh, you have to constantly be on the ball and adapt um, in, in a way. So, uh, great to, uh, to hear. Yep. No, I was just going to ask, um, you, you work with the community of special needs. Do you go to them or do you, or is it, cause uh, Sensei, Sensei John Johnston, you know, yeah. he, he goes into the, oh, it's, it's heartwarming. Amazing. It's amazing. We got to go with him in, into one of his venues and, and the whole place just lit up when he walked in. So I'm just curious, I don't know really. I, I do both, about. I do both. So I work with a small uh, mental health charity which is called uh, Oak Leaf. So I go there and teach uh, strictly to their, their students. But I'm running my own club where we're focusing only uh, mostly on, on health and mental health. But everybody's welcome. So I not only have uh, people with um, uh, autism, but I've got as well uh, deaf people, deaf person, uh, MS students, uh, on anxiety, depression, uh, abused person. So it is very... Um, tricky at the beginning was very tricky to kind of suit to everybody what should i do how should i do but i found the communication you just ask people and showing your own vulnerabilities uh opens a lot of gates if they know that you know i'm i'm an anxious person and i went through some uh stuff in my life it is different game than coming to somebody who don't know what he's talking about and try to to please them um so that's, that's kind of my recipe. So I just adjust. I've got a lot of as well uh, people up to 90 years old who started karate five fantastic. years ago. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so I have to adapt to them that more physical level, but uh, you know, using chairs for kata and stuff like that. So, so it's kind of oh. um, all the time thinking how I need to adapt and so people are happy. 
And I think um, that strategy of leading with our vulnerabilities is so an extremely powerful. And this is where men get shortchanged a lot, right? Like you're not supposed to show your vulnerabilities. You're not supposed to have anxiety. You're just supposed to be strong and stoic. Um, so I applaud you for breaking out of that gender role. It's, it's important. I know when we go, when we go into the domestic violence shelter, historically, we do a get your black belt on a women's empowerment kind of thing. And when I tell them, look, um, I've, I grew up, this is, this is my story. You know, I, I lived in a very, very violent home, extremely violent against me and I saw, and against my mother, you know, I saw various acts of violence. And so it sort of legitimizes you right away, right? And they're like, oh, okay, she gets it. Oh, she gets it. Okay, I don't have to, you know, we don't have to pretend to be something we're not because we're, it kind of levels the playing field and it allows folk to, to really be organic. And, and, you know, with you just saying that, uh, that destigmatizes that sort of male gender role. Mm. We, um, Ian, Ian Abernathy, which you, you both know, um, is great help. So we together doing a seminar uh, called Karate for Mental Health every year, and we try to bring to the mostly male, male in the martial arts that you know it's okay to say you've got a problem. You don't need to be a macho man all the time. We we do all have feelings. All all of us whipping sometimes, probably on uh, children's movies and stuff like that. We whip, and <laughs> and it's it's okay. It's okay to speak about mental health and, and weaknesses. You know, we don't have to be a uh, superman. Uh, we just need to be normal. And I think it's good for children to have a role model who actually can show a um, wide range of emotions, not just uh, being a tough guy. Yeah, I think I think you're doing fantastic work, and I think um, from what I see, you're you're in, instigating a lot of this over there in the UK and uh, getting other people involved. I really think it's fantastic. And, and also the book, Courageous. the book you've written is, is great too. Put, putting yourself, you know, revealing yourself. Mm. I, 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 you know, maybe you do realize the impact and the help it's giving people, but I think it's tremendous. I really think it's a really positive contribution. Uh, it, it, it's partly because of John, uh, <laughs> when I was starting with it, I done my course of uh, uh, disability coaching for martial arts. Um, and I spoke a lot of with John and I uh, kind of listened to him. And every time I see him, I'm kind of pulling him, oh, tell me more, tell me more how to work with those people and, uh, and how to be better instructor. Um, so, you know, it's not just me, it's the people behind the scenes who are helping me yeah, uh, and supporting I me. But that yeah. is you. That's you seeking, reaching you out, reaching yeah. out, and and doing what you should. You know what we all should be doing. Our is, due diligence. Yeah, getting getting help. <laughs> people who are ahead of us in the game. Yeah, but like like I say, John, John and Elaine's program is just phenomenal. I mean, just a minute. and and like Michelle said, the way the way the people light up when John <laughs> comes in the room. These people who are literally like like sitting in a chair. You think that they can't even move. But he he brings something to all of them. <laughs> He's like the gentle giant, isn't he? He's such yeah, a yeah, he is. And I and I love his jokes. He his jokes are great. <laughs> End of the session. We've traveled around with him for like two weeks two almost. Weeks, yeah. Every single day, like traveling in the car on seminar. It was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, on the on the last seminar, he was um, teaching us first, and he did in his. Uh, 
his joke on the end of the session. So I told him off and I said, listen, end of the seminar, I want you to say the joke. So he said his joke, you probably heard that, that you know, um, something about kicking the doors or slamming the doors, but you cannot do it with revolving doors. I, I'm really rubbish with remembering stuff. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I really, really like John. I'm really, really mm -hmm. grateful that I, I can communicate with him on a regular basis and learn from him. Okay, um, I'm going to be running out of time. <laughs> um, can you tell us uh, where people can find you? Uh, any new projects coming up? I know you've got lots of uh, super DVDs uh, on sale. Well, seminars? We, seminars? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we had, uh, we had a bunch of seminars planned for this year, but they... Face-to-face, -face, yeah, obviously we, that know, didn't work. Yeah, we were going to be in uh, Holland and Austria and... Uh, Different locations in the United States, and we had, we, we, and we also have, have people who are going to be coming over from uh, from the East Coast, from Europe, because we have an Uchideshi program where people come stay with us. Um, so that's that's one of the one of the things that we offer is is for folks they do a live-in program, so they come here, stay in the house, they can have their own room, they come to our group classes, plus we do training with them every day. Uh, we have a Kind of workout space in the garage so we have the uchi deshi program we do seminars right now we have our zoom classes of course uh, but our most recent our most recent uh grand opening was we rolled out the gkc college why don't you tell me a little bit about that yeah well um yeah so uh yeah G gkc college we, we get so many people contacting us and you know wanting us to teach and everything and 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 visit and so obviously now we, we cannot and uh, always get people asking questions about Kaka the center. So we decided we'll, we'll start a college. Um, and so uh, essentially what that is, if, if someone wants to learn something, we want, we want to make sure they're actually learning it. And so we, we do uh, essentially, we do a 20 minute lesson with them. But before we do any lessons with them, um, say they wanted to learn a goju kata, they would they would submit a three-minute video of their kata so that we can see ahead of time what it is we can help them with. We review it independently and then we come together and say, okay, this is this is what I saw, what did you see? And then we get on the on Zoom like we are right now. We give them the corrections and we record it and then send them that send them the recording so they can work on it. And in yeah. doing this, they'll be able to eventually you know, work through all the kata and all the curriculum of, of Goju, especially if they have a partner. They yeah. and, and some people are actually a, a, like a, a GKC Global Dojo somewhere in the world. And these people uh, um, also have to uh, pursue ranks. They don't have to. But you know, most, most, a lot of martial arts have a rank system. We have a rank system. And so some of them pursue rank. And so uh, this is one way... Uh, we, we might prepare someone who we can only see once or twice a year. We might prepare them to, uh, for their next rank, if that's what they're interested in doing. Um, so instead of spending two hours at a seminar once a year, and then 30 minutes private, like consistently once a week or twice a month, we are constantly going back and forth, reviewing um, the kata or bunkai, whatever it is they're working on, the kumite, Constantly reviewing, and then uh, and then often what will happen is when it's, when they have the ability, they'll come here, 
and they'll be Uchideshi will spend time with them. And then so we can, you know, they're really, they're really uh, uh, learning consistently, not just kind of getting a rough idea in a, in a one day seminar or a two hour lesson, if that makes sense. It's like kind of like a deep dive, right? A deeper yeah. dive into, into their own personal training. Yeah. And, and a lot of these people are also dojo owners too. They have their own dojo. So uh, we consult with them on that. And we, we, we give them ideas. They give us ideas. The QKC community uh, benefits from all different ideas from everyone. When, yeah, when we first got closed down over mm -hmm. here, uh, having an international community was just incredibly powerful. We called a meeting, a Zoom meeting, and I believe we had about 14, 14 different dojos attend from all over the world. And we laid out a roadmap. We laid out a map. You know, we, we set an agenda in and we said, look, this is what we can do. Um, who has, you know, this person wants to teach Kabuto. This person wants to teach the Joe. Uh, I can, this other gentleman can do Tai Chi. And how can we support each other? So it, on the front end, we were kind of dispersing the load and creating really, uh, 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 creating a connected community, but also more interesting classes for, for all of us. Uh, and we allow our, you know, our affiliate dojos, they can come to our Zoom classes. And uh, so I think, you know, for us, it's, it's so that international connection was really fundamental to keeping, to keeping us uh, uh, on that cutting edge. And even now we'll do, we'll do check-ins. How's everyone doing? Everyone's in different stages of opening. Uh, we have one, you know, one example, a guy's great with, uh, with IT stuff. So he said, look, here's some posters you can use. And he contributed those for, you know, wash your hands and are these are the rules, you know, temperature and all that. So. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, as, as far as getting in contact with us, we have a YouTube, we have a YouTube channel, which is called GKC Gorju. We have a lot of free content on there. Uh, we, we, have all, all our, we have about six, five or six different Facebook pages, like GKC Global, GKC Film and Video. I can't remember. But, and then we have, uh, <laughs> we have a couple of websites. We have a dojo website, which is just for the dojo, really, for local, local dojo, which is gojukaratecenter.com. And then we have a sort of global website, which is gkcglobalshop.com, which has all our sort of content membership information, news, that type of thing. And on our, if you're a GKC Global member, we have the Facebook GKC Global members only page. So we're putting content. And uh, now it's kind of fun because I get to do live, live feeds into that. So you can go there and, you know, pick up information as well. But, but thanks again so much for having us. We really Pleasure. It's so always, always great to um, pick people's ideas and, uh, and how they do stuff so I can learn a little bit more. Yeah, and then just a minute before we go, we're plug your book. <laughs> yeah, we we were very pleased to receive a copy of this fantastic book, and uh, definitely recommend it to uh, uh, anyone in or out of the martial arts. It's a, and our letter. Uh, yeah, and we're very very happy, and uh, of course written by Les Sensor here. So uh, buy this book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I hope you didn't pull your hair out reading my uh, gra English grammar. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still learning. Fantastic. Yeah, well done. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Uh, uh, thank you for this fantastic um, conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to see you and good luck with uh, all your projects. Um, 
and it's it's really nice to uh, see the progress and you know we see it we see you on Facebook and it's uh, I'm just happy for you. It's fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. You too. Right, you too. Bye. Bye.